Good morning. Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17. And today we'll begin in verse 15. We've got several who are still out, but good looking crowd. And I bet it's a really good looking crowd online. I just can't see you. 1 Kings chapter 17. We ended our last lesson with Elijah telling the widow woman to fear not. And furthermore, after fearing not, this widow woman was told to make Elijah a cake of meal and feed him first. If you recall, she had but a handful of meal left in her barrel. And so before she fed herself and her son, Elijah said, make me first a cake. This was on top of his request for her to fetch him a cruise of water. And all of those requests, which would seem unreasonable, even cruel to the carnal eye, were conditioned upon a promise. And that promise was this. The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail, until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. So from this, we can take away a simple truth. Fear not, for the Lord will fail not. Fear not, for the Lord will fail not. That's an easy way to summarize that passage. Now we're going to begin the new part of our study in verse 15, speaking of the widow. And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah. And she and he and her house did eat many days. Notice it says, she went and did. She went and did. You see, faith without works is dead. As James wrote in the second chapter and 20th verse of his epistle, if this widow truly believed what Elijah said concerning God's promise, then she would demonstrate her faith by a work. And here's what that work was. That work was putting her and her son's earthly survival in the hands of the Lord who never fails. In the Lord whose pantry never runs dry. It wasn't so much her making a cake with her hands. It was putting her trust in what God said to her through the prophet Elijah. And by understanding this lesson, and we may also understand that the work that demonstrates our faith in Jesus Christ, putting our eternal survival in the hands of the Lord who never fails, that's our work. We do this work by believing the record that God gave of his son. And that record is that he died for our sins, he was raised for our justification, and he ascended 
to the right hand of his father. The work for the widow, yes, it involved baking a meal. And the work for the Christian involved believing a message. And she had to believe a a message to bake that meal. If she didn't believe that message, she would have said, look, fella, there's just enough for my son and me. You need to go somewhere else. But as we read last week, the Lord commanded her ahead of time to sustain Elijah. Now, in John chapter 6, verses 28 through 29, listen to what Jesus said about the work. Because even when we teach this, there will be somebody who's confused saying, so I have to do something. I've got to bake that meal into cake in order to be saved. No. Listen to what Jesus said about the work. John chapter 6, verses 28 through 29. Then said they unto him, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said unto them, this is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he has sent. That's the work of God. They said, what shall we do? He said, believe on him whom God has sent. That's the work of God. So this woman went, and look back in the text, it says she went and did according to the saying of Elijah. According to the saying of Elijah. That meant she didn't go and do according to her interpretation of what Elijah said or what she thought he meant or what he should have meant. She didn't go and do according to someone else's opinion of what Elijah said. In fact, she didn't go and do exactly part of what Elijah said, but rather according to the saying of Elijah. And herein lies the problem with a religious person, the average religious person today. And this would necessarily mean those who are still in unbelief. Perhaps that person has heard the gospel message, just like the woman heard Elijah's instructions to go and bake him a cake first. Or perhaps this religious person has only heard the scriptures read but then the preacher twisted its clear message to be more palatable to the people. So having heard the word of Elijah, this religious person goes and makes a cake for himself first and then tries to scrape up enough for Elijah saying, well, the result will be the same. Or perhaps he goes and puts filler in the flour and hopes it will still make a good meal and be sufficient for everyone. Spiritually speaking, this is a person who hears the gospel, but rather than staking his eternal life on it, he adds an ingredient such as baptism, baptism in water or trying to speak in tongues or saying a prayer of some sort. And of this sort of person, it could be written, he went and did according to some of the saying of it. And that, dear friend, is a person who is yet in his sins. And in our text, it says there in verse 15, And she and he and her house did eat many days. Notice three things here. One, 
her obedience resulted in not only her earthly survival, but survival of others. Two, her faith was made sight when the barrel of meal and the cruise of oil never failed. Before, she had to believe it would be so. And once it was so, then her faith was strengthened. And three, as we will see in a few moments, this earthly test was going to prepare this widow for an even more severe test of her faith. You think putting her survival in the hands of this prophet was something. Wait till she puts her son's life in the hands of this prophet. Now let's look at verse 16. We're in 1 Kings chapter 17, and now we're in verse 16. And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. Every time one of God's prophecies, his promises, is fulfilled within his word, in other words, read about the prophecy, and then you see the fulfillment of it in the Bible, it ought to strengthen your faith. God said he would do something, and then he did it, and you can say, that's my God, he never breaks his promise. And then he does it again, he fulfills it, and you say, my God, he never breaks his promise. And when you see that, and you're not going to see that unless you read your Bibles. You're not going to see that unless you study God's word. If you're waiting around for some magic sermon for some preacher to get up here and light the pulpit on fire, you never will learn those promises. But if you'll learn those promises, then when you read the ones that have not yet been fulfilled, then you'll say, my God's going to keep those promises just like he kept the ones he fulfilled in the Bible. It'll be the same thing. In this case, this widow's faith became sight. To watch the barrel of meal continually have meal in it and the cruise of oil continually have oil in it. Now, what we don't read is, was the barrel completely full or was it half full or was there always just enough every day? I tend to think that's probably what it was, but that's just an opinion that when she scooped all of it out for one day and turned and made the cake, that when she turned back, there was a little bit more for the next day. But that's that's a conjecture. It certainly would be something God would do. But it was God's word through Elijah that was found to be true. Elijah's words, now listen to this, Elijah's words weren't approved by the Lord. They were supplied by the Lord. Elijah didn't say, how does this sound, God? I'll go to this woman and I'll tell her thus and thus. And God said, it's my boy, Elijah. That was a good idea. No, it was the other way around. These were God's words. And what was Elijah doing? He was just hauling the water for God. He was passing out the bread as we've studied before. And there's a huge difference between the words being approved by God and the words being supplied by the Lord. Now, when you speak the words that are supplied by the Lord, then you are approved by God. In fact, Paul admonished Timothy. He said, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So he said in so many words, Timothy, if you'll take God's word, word of truth, and rightly divide it. In other words, explain it to the people. Tell them what it means. Then that is studying to show yourself approved of God. You have to study to show yourself approved of God before you can tell people what the Bible means. 
And again, what does that require of the Bible teacher? Study, study, study. It's tedious. It's long. The carnal world sees it as a useless endeavor. Some people, even in the church, may say, I just don't know how he does it. But it's because God supplies the words. And that takes all the pressure off of us to come up with anything. It's all right here. You want to know, Brother Andy, how do you decide what you're going to teach on? What do I say about these verse-by-verse studies, brother? It's just like baloney. You just cut it off wherever, and you pick it up next time. You don't have to decide what you're going to teach on. You just teach the next verse. And the next verse, and when we're through with this book, what what are we going to do? We're going to teach another book, verse 1, chapter 1, and go to the end of the the book, God willing. Now, when we ask God to bless our works, including our words, when those works or those words are from our own imagination, we are foolish. And when we try to merge worldly efforts with spiritual ones, we have to be very careful because sometimes those worldly efforts overshadow the spiritual purpose. Now, a worldly effort would be building this building right here so people can come in and hear God's word. That's a good thing. We had to build the building so when we're in here, if it's raining or it's too hot or it's too cold or it's not right, everybody's somewhat comfortable, and sometimes we can't even get that right. But that's a worldly endeavor. But what if we spent all of our time on the building, and we all met here on Sunday morning, and we have a, a roughly an hour or less Sunday school and, and about an hour during the 11 o'clock worship time, and we spent 58 minutes of each of those hours dusting and vacuuming and making sure if there's a, a place that needed to be painted, we painted it. Now, that would have be a worldly endeavor taking over a spiritual endeavor. And so we have to be very careful with that. Example, how did God ordain the gospel to be preached? There are all sorts of fanciful ideas people have about what a missionary is, what an evangelist is. Oh, we have this kind of ministry for Jesus and this kind of ministry for Jesus. Listen, let's read what God said about how he wants his word to be preached. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 15. You've heard it. We've quoted it. But it's worth hearing again. Romans 10, 14 through 15. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of the, that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. And from that Romans text, we learn a narrow way that God has intended for a person to believe the gospel. And that's by hearing a God-sent preacher preach the gospel. In studying the Greek word for preach in the New Testament, you'll see that every preacher was first sent. You'll not see one who just up on his own and came up with his own gospel because that's another gospel which is not another. And you'll notice that Jesus was first sent by God. He was sent by the Father. And then the apostles were sent by Jesus. Every preacher of truth is sent by Jesus to preach this message 
in their time and in our time, a preacher has to be sent with this message. And that means that preacher's got to tell what message the the originator of the message said for him to be a good messenger. If I come and tell you something different than what my boss told me to tell you, I'm a terrible messenger. In our time, we have the advantage of sound systems, radio, television, and the Internet. So that God-sent preaching of the gospel can be heard all over the world. Why would our... And yet there are so few people who preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of preaching going on, but of that, precious little in comparison. And there are so few who believe the gospel, which I believe is why there are so few who preach the gospel. You can't preach something you're not believing in. Oh, you could spout the words out there and not believe the message. But to preach, to proclaim, to be a herald, to believe that message... That's a different thing. Why would our dear brothers and sisters across the country and across the world need to tune into our church to hear the gospel? We're not the only ones preaching the gospel, but we are preaching it. And why would they have to tune in from across the country and across the world to hear the gospel? Because all the preaching they've heard was from preachers who were not sent by God message they brought to the people was not sent by God. And we who know the message know whether the messenger is preaching truth or heresy, don't we? We know what the gospel is. Jesus died, was buried again, according to the scriptures, and was raised on the third day, ascended to heaven, he's coming back. We know the good news. And so when that messenger comes to us, in any form, whether maybe you read about him on the internet or you see some Facebook post, and I'm going to say it again, y'all. This is I'm asking you, please be careful what you repost on Facebook. Please be careful what you share. I still see, and I won't say any you know what who it is or any of that, but I still see things, and I believe it's done intentionally with a sincere heart, just to try to maybe encourage others. I'll see something posted on a Facebook page and think, man, that's heresy. I don't want to tell anybody to that or to read that. So just be real careful because you know the truth. You know what the gospel says. And therefore, you know when some messenger is a liar. And many so-called preachers, and we'll just get it down real tight to us here, in independent fundamental Baptist churches, let's just keep it right there, in our country, in our state, in our area, claim to be preaching the truth, and claim to be sent from God. But many are frauds, and it's sad. Listen to the testimony of James in Acts chapter 15 and verse 21. Acts 15, 21. Here's what James said. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Now, to preach Moses is to preach the law that God gave. So it's not that they're preaching a biography about Moses. When they say, when the Bible says preaching Moses, that's preaching the law that Moses gave. And how did Moses get it? He went up the mountain. God wrote it on the tablets. Moses brought it down to the people. And he said, here is what God said. And if you don't believe me, this is 
after he went up the second time to get the second copy. First one he shattered on the ground in anger. But he said, this is what God said, and there it is right there in writing. Got any questions? And what did the people say? Oh, that the Lord has spoken, this we will do. We'll do it. They knew what the truth was, and they said we'll do it. So in those days, as James testified, in every city there were those who preached the truth. Even back then, before they had sound systems and radio and television and Internet, they had the truth. And yet today, I doubt it could be said, for Jesus in this time hath in every city them that preach him being read in the church every day. So friends, learn the Bible so you'll know what is the true message and who is the true messenger, just like this widow woman had to do. And when you hear the true message from the true messenger, go and do according to the saying of the messenger knowing he was sent by God. That's what the widow did, wasn't it? She went and did according to all that Elijah said. Verse 17, And it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick. His sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. The woman, that's still the widow woman, also called the mistress of the house. She had a son who was sick and died. It said there was no breath in him. He was no longer breathing. And as our context will tell us, this doesn't mean he was just having difficult breathing or having sleep apnea. He stopped breathing. The word for breath or breathing is first found in Genesis chapter 2, just to give you assurance that this child was indeed dead. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. Now, at that point, what was man? Yeah, he was dust, and then he was formed into a man. But he still lacked something, and that was the breath of life. So he's dead. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So what was the difference between the man being dead and the man being a living soul? The breath of life that God breathed into him. And with this text and then with our context, we can understand our verse to clearly mean this child, this son of the widow woman, died from an illness. Verse 18, And she said unto Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? What a pitiful verse. What a pitiful thing and what a pitiful woman she was. Don't you feel sorry for her? She was already a widow. She had one child and the child died. At first glance, you might think, well, this woman's ungrateful. Look at all the things God's done in her midst. But if you will, let's dissect this verse a little bit and see what was really going on with this woman. She said, what have I to do with thee? In other words, she's asking how she's connected with with Elijah. Or what does he have against her as some... What do you have against me? The death of her son has caused her to ask if this death was because of her sins. That's a legitimate question. That is, did Elijah come to her house 
to bring death to her son on account of her sins. In these words, even though one may look at them and say she's, she's doubting God, she's doubting Elijah. In these words, there are two things this woman recognized. Number one, was a man of God. She didn't change her mind about who Elijah was. And she also recognized a very simple truth. The wages of sin is death. She knew sin and death were connected, didn't she? She immediately connected sin with death. And though these two things were obvious to her, there was one thing that was not. And that was the thought that her son would have to die for her sins. Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? That's what she said. Well, let me tell you how glad I am that one day, 2,000 years ago, God called my sin to remembrance and slayed his son on the cross so they would be remembered against me no more. That's right. As Peter spoke on the day of Pentecost about Jesus, he said to those people, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. What did this woman say? She said, Art thou come to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? Verse 19, And he, that's Elijah, said unto her, Give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up into a loft where he abode, that's where Elijah was living, and laid him upon his own bed, that is, upon Elijah's own bed. He said, and give me thy son. What is this but a requirement for absolute faith? Just as as Hannah, if you remember studying 1 Samuel, just as Hannah, the mother of Samuel, gave to the Lord her living son, Samuel, gave Samuel to the Lord's priest, Eli. So this woman must give her dead son to the Lord's prophet, Elijah. That's an easy way to remember that. As Hannah gave her son, living son, to Eli, God's priest, the widow woman gave her dead son to Elijah, the Lord's prophet. What anguish Mary must have felt when her perfect son, Jesus, the son of God, was tried in those Jewish and Gentile kangaroo courts, mocked, spat upon, beaten, called Beelzebub, and then crucified. And yet from conception to circumcision to crucifixion, Mary over and over again gave her son to the Lord. Before her son was ever born, she was told the purpose of his coming, and it would be to save his people from their sins. Mary was a believer. She knew what that meant, that her son would be the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist would later preach. And finally, in burial in the sealing of the tomb, Mary had completely given her son, Jesus, to the Lord. And likewise, this widow must trust the lifeless body of her son to the Lord. 
You know, there's no more tender place for a child than the bosom of his mother. It's there she keeps him warm. She nurses him, him, protects him, watches him sleep. It's there he goes whenever he's hurt, crying or afraid. Yet in this widow's bosom, the dead child could have none of those things because he was dead. And from her bosom, that place of protection and nourishment and comfort and warmth, she gave her son to Elijah, who was sent by the Lord. You remember the promise God made was that this widow in Zarephath, the one we're reading about, would sustain Elijah. And when Elijah sent the widow to make a meal, he didn't promise her that her son would live. He just said the barrel and the cruise will never fail. Nowhere was there a mention that the son of the widow would not die. And most of what's written about Elijah is contained in First and Second Kings. As you've learned before, you can usually go to First or Second Chronicles to read parallel information about what you read in First and Second Kings. And sometimes you'll read some more details, other times less. But in the Chronicles, there's only one passage that speaks of Elijah. So what we get from about Elijah is contained here, and then what is said about him later on in the Old and New Testaments. This son was a child. He was at least small enough for the mother to hold him in her bosom. He was at least young enough that he wasn't able to work and help his mother pick up sticks and go cut wheat or whatever would be necessary to sustain her. And he was her only son and her only child. Yet Elijah said, and give me thy son. It says, and he took him out of her bosom. What was her bosom in death but a grave for that child? A place where his dead body lay. That's what a grave is, isn't it? No matter how we dress it up, it's ultimately a place where we lay the dead body. Even if we cremate one, we lay the dead body, the, the cremains as they're called, and, and we put them in an urn and in some sort of a, a memorial place, whether it's in the ground or in a vault. But it's nothing more than a place where the dead body lays. And that had been her bosom for a few moments. We don't know how long. But by taking the dead child, boy, this is good now, by taking the dead child out of her bosom, Elijah showed us how God took Jesus out of the bosom of the grave. And the text tells us, carried him up into a loft where he abode. That's where Elijah, the man of God, took this dead child. Into a loft where he abode. And that loft represents heaven. In fact, heaven is a lofty place. When you look up the the word heaven, it's a lofty place where he abode. He took him to that lofty place where he abode. That represents where God is, the throne of God. Listen to this. John 16, 28. Listen to what Jesus said about himself. John 16, 28. I came forth from the Father, and in coming to the world, again I leave the world and go to the Father. 
Jesus came into this world by means of an immaculate conception. The Holy Ghost overshadowing Mary, and she was with child without ever having known a man. She remained a virgin even through the birth. So Jesus came that way, and he came into this world. How did he leave this world? Through the bosom of the grave. He died on a cross and was buried in a grave, a borrowed tomb. And from there, he went to be with the Father. In other words, he was raised from the dead. The text says, and laid him upon his own bed. That is, versus the bosom of his mother, this child where, where his dead body was before he was laid on the bed where the prophet was, where he lived. Think about what would have happened if Jesus had been taken from the cross, dead, and his dead body just placed in his mother's bosom rather than being sealed in a tomb. Perhaps she would sit on the ground and they would say, here's your son, and kind of roll him over and she would just hold his adult body, bloody, dead. It would have caused his own prophecy to be broken, wouldn't it? It was necessary that he not remain in the bosom of his mother. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40. Jesus said, For as Jonas, that's Jonah, was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights where? In the heart of the earth. If this child is to be raised from the dead, then he must be laid upon the bed where Elijah abode, not in the bosom of his mother. Jesus did not say, For as Jonas was in three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be in three nights in the bosom of his mother. He said, In the heart of the earth. Now look with me there in verse 20. Elijah has now laid the child upon his own bed. It says, And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, Hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son? What about this question? Why does Elijah use the word evil? Does it mean he's accusing God of doing something wrong? You know, we've studied this doctrine in Sunday school two or three times that I remember. But I always want to go over this again because there are always new new ears that hear or perhaps we're forgetful and we say, you know, I think I remember, but I don't remember what the conclusion of the matter was. Well, let's see what it was. First of all, the word evil. That's what trips people up here. Not that God did something, is that Elijah said, have you done evil? The word evil is also translated as the word afflict, harm, the word ill, the word break. In fact, Psalm 44, verses 1 through 3, has the word afflict. I want you to listen for it, because this is a psalm of praise. We have heard with our ears, O God, our have told us what work thou didst in their days, in the times of old, how thou didst drive out the heathen with thy hand, and plantest them, how thou didst afflict the people, that's the children of Israel, and cast them out. For they got not the land in possession by their own sword, neither did their own arm save them, but thy right hand and thine arm. 
and the light of thy countenance, because thou hadst a favor unto them. In that psalm, the word afflict is the same, comes from the same Hebrew word that's translated as evil in our text. Other translations put our text, or that part of our text in verse 20 this way. O God, have you brought calamity, instead of evil, even upon the widow with whom I sojourn, and that's in the English Standard Version, or as given in the Reina Valera, which is the Spanish translation from the original text. I'll translate that into English for you, since most of you don't speak Spanish. It says, to the widow in whose house I am staying, you have afflicted. That's how it's translated. So the word afflicted is chosen there in the Spanish language to, uh, instead of the word evil. It's the same thing in Hebrew. And this psalmist is praised God for afflicting Israel by casting them out of a land for their sin. He said, they didn't get this land by their own sword and by their own hand. You gave it to them. You're the one who saves. They save themselves. So he's praising them, praising God for casting them out. And with all of that said, our present text there in verse 20, look back at it again, where he asked this question, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourn by slaying her son? By using the text could be translated this way. And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought affliction upon the widow with whom I sojourn by slaying her son? And because of the way we use the word evil in our society, sometimes it's better just to take a different word, although it means the exact same thing, and put it there so our minds can be right about the Scripture. To further solidify your understanding of the use of the word evil concerning the actions of the Lord here, one would have to agree it is a scriptural, it is a righteous thing, that a person of any age would die for sin. Because the Bible says, for the way sin is, it's death, right? And as sad as it is, and as much as we call tragedy, the death of any person at any time is in the Lord's hand. The one who appoints unto man wants to die, and after this the judgment. Verse 21 And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. Now the child has been taken from his mother's bosom to the loft where Elijah abode and laid upon his bed. And just as the woman gave her son to Elijah, Elijah gives the child to God. He depends on God to do the work of raising the child from the dead, if it would be his will. God could have said, no, I have a purpose in taking this child. All souls are mine. And the word soul here is all as the word life, so you're not mistaken. We first see the Hebrew word translated soul translated as the word life instead. And it's in Genesis chapter 1 verse 20. Genesis chapter 1, verse 20, where it says, And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life, and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. So it means the life. The word soul can also be translated 
into uh, other words as such as persons. It means persons. So it's not always what you think of as a soul in, uh, in whatever your perspective is. We have by what those original languages tell us that the word means. That's why we spend so much time saying in the Hebrew or in the Greek, I hope you don't tire of that because that's the only way we can understand the original intent of the word. Languages change, don't they? Meanings change. And using this equal translation, the last part of our verse could read where Elijah prayed, let this child's life come unto him again. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? And this would prevent any misunderstanding about the soul. You know, today the word soul is mostly used ethnically, isn't it? We say soul, and people immediately think of a, a culture of people who cook a certain type of food. And let me tell you, I love that stuff. I, that's It loves me too. But the New Testament word for soul, which so you'll see it in the Old Testament, as nephesh, which is a, a breath, like a breath of life, which is what God breathed into Adam. In the New Testament, that word soul is translated from a Greek word, different language. And it's the word suke, or you would look at it and say psych, psyche. But it's where we get the word psychology and other words. And in the New Testament, the word soul is not limited to just the breath of life, but it also has to do with the mind. And we would say the mind, will, and emotions of a person. Paul prayed that your whole soul, body, and spirit be sanctified. And he recognized the three parts of the of the of a person, body, soul, and spirit. So for our purposes in this present text, Elijah is praying that God would restore life to the child. That's all. And after all, who specializes in breathing the breath of life into a lifeless body? The same one who gives spiritual life to a dead spirit. That's God. Let's go on to verse 22. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. Notice how God answered Elijah's question. Elijah had asked God, did you bring on this widow woman? And God didn't say a word to Elijah as far as we know. He didn't say, well, Elijah, let me explain to you why I did that. He didn't justify to Elijah why the child had to die first, why the child couldn't just be left living. And he doesn't have to. However, we might learn from another passage in the Bible why God would allow the child to die before uh, raising him. Besides the obvious, the wages of sin is death. Perhaps you're familiar with the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead after. Girls, how many days was Lazarus in the tomb? It's near four days. (laughs) That's right. Four days. And yet among the Jews, there was some second going on as to why Jesus let Lazarus die in the first place. Lazarus was his friend. Verses 37 through 40 give us a clue to why Jesus allowed Lazarus to not only die, but to be in a grave for four days where, I believe it was Martha who said, Lord, by now he stinketh. In other words, he's he is way past CPR. Lord, he's dead. He's dead decomposing. He stinks. Why? Could not this man 
Well, here's what the text says there in verses 37 through 40. And some of them said, Could not this man, which opened the eyes of the blind, have caused that even this man should not have died? Jesus, therefore, again groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, said unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? As Lazarus was dead and in a tomb, so this widow's child was dead and lying upon Elijah's bed, no longer in his mother's bosom. There was no breath in him, so he was beyond hope of being saved. Why did God let this child die? It's the same question the people asked about Jesus. Why did you let Lazarus die? He did it to glorify himself. That's why he did it. God let the child die to glorify himself. In the sight of the widow, in the sight of her son, in the sight of Elijah, and to us who get to read this account of God raising one up from the dead who had died. It says, And the soul of the child came into him, and he revived. God did what he does best. We know the word soul there is also translated as the word life. God did what he does best. He gave life to that child who was dead. And, oh, this child would one day breathe his final breath again. That wasn't his final breath, by the way. In fact, this child has been dead for thousands of years now. It's 2021. But in raising physical body from the dead, God shows us that he also raises from the spiritual death those who put their trust in him. He raised his son from the dead so that all who are in his son have been raised from the dead positionally. And one day after our bodies die, raised from the dead practically. And with that, we'll stop. Any questions or comments about the lesson? Okay. Let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're thankful for all who have come to listen to your word. Father, we pray that each of us would take away from it truth. It would not be marred by the distractions that may have entered our minds or the false doctrine of the devil. Lord God, that it would be refined gold, all the dross burned off, and that we may grow thereby. And Lord, as we go into our next hour of worship, I pray, Father, we'd worship you in spirit and truth. Our songs, our prayer, our thoughts and desires, the preaching of your word would all be pleasing to you.